Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. The sky lit up at night. At least three people are dead and hundreds injured after an explosion at an illegal gas depot in Nairobi. A witness describes the terror of the fireball and wonders why officials did not do more to keep his neighborhood safe. From bad to worse to worse and worse. For months, aid workers have described the humanitarian situation in Gaza as the worst they've ever seen. An aid worker in Rafa tells us that hard as it is to believe, things just keep on deteriorating. To serve and protect the need to serve and protect a decade after a police officer killed teenager Sami Yatim on a Toronto streetcar, a coroner's inquest makes dozens of recommendations and says out loud, it was homicide. He talked the talk. A friend and colleague remembers longtime Nova Scotia talk radio host Rick Howe saying Mr. Howe may have leaned into the outrage on the air, but he was also a true optimist. They didn't train for these hurdles. Dozens of young athletes might miss out on competing at the Arctic Winter Games in Alaska this year because of a series of obstacles getting in the way of getting their passports in time. And plaything blame. A Freedom of Information request reveals the level of concern in the U.S. National Security Agency in the 90s over a potential double agent, the Furby. The talking children's toy they believed was also listening. As it happens, the Friday edition radio that warns you to be discreet. The malls have ears. Sounds last night and early this morning after a truck loaded with liquid petroleum gas exploded in an illegal depot in Nairobi. At least three people are dead and some 280 hurt, two dozen of whom are critically injured. The depot was near a residential area. It had been demolished before and the owner had been charged, but officials say the depot continued to operate. Philip Awinio Jeremiah lives near the depot. He was home last night when the blasts occurred. We reached him in Nairobi. Philip, I know it's the middle of the night there now, but what does the site look like today? What is it like there? Uh, t- today, uh, they had uh, cordoned the the area because of uh, investigations, mm-hmm. but you could see that uh, the whole area was uh, was black. Last night, what time yeah, was it when you, when you realized something wasn't right? Oh, I realized that some, something wasn't right at around 11, mm-hmm. uh, 11.40 to be exact because uh, I felt tremors uh, near next to my window. And uh, when I felt the second tremor, which was a bit stronger, I I realized that something, something could be wrong outside because I had uh, screams in the background. So that's when I, I went close by my window. And when I realized that there was a fire... I, I, I alerted my mom, who was in the sitting room. 
we rushed to the bathroom window that faces directly opposite uh, the road. And uh, all we could see is a number of people with their families outside mm-hmm. uh, going in the opposite direction of the fire. So mm-hmm. now my mother, uh, she panicked because uh, since uh, my mom had seen that there was fire from a distance, she decided to take caution and uh, she took her important documents. And at that time is when she told me to pack up my stuff. And I was confused because I I didn't know what was going on and I felt like she was uh, over panicking. But indeed, uh, we rushed to put uh, the things in the car. Yeah. And now when when she came back to the house to, to, to confirm that the house was locked, uh, I decided to move to higher ground and see what was going on over the fence. That's when I climbed to second floor mm-hmm. and that's where I shot the video. Describe what you saw when you climbed onto the balcony. So when I climbed onto the balcony, it's I stood there like for probably a minute before we I saw that huge light. And the next thing I saw was a fireball that went up and it exploded. And it felt like it was daytime because the whole, the whole sky lit up in orange. And the next thing I was seeing sparks all around. And in the background, my mom is shouting my name severally, and I could, I could, all I could say was "Oh my God!" in the background because I didn't know what to say. I was shocked. I had never seen anything like that before. And just how far is the distance from where you are on that balcony to where this explosion is happening? From where the explosion is happening, I would say it was about uh, maybe you'd say three hundred meters, uh, considering uh, there's a fence that separates uh, the block I was in, and. Uh, where the explosion had happened over the mm-hmm. fence. Could you feel the heat of it? Yeah, I, I had a hoodie on and I felt the heat rush through my face. Mm-hmm. And as I was holding the phone, I also realized uh, the, the heat was getting into my hands and it was quite hot. And that's when I realized that this is not something to play with. So that's how I rushed downstairs. And your mother screaming your name at that point, understandably worried for your safety. Yeah. Were you frightened? Yes, I was indeed frightened, uh, though, by because I was just imagining uh, the people uh, who live uh, across the fence because the gas plant was situated mm-hmm. uh, near, uh, it was around a residential area. Yeah, there is, there is a history here. The depot had been demolished twice before. The owner was previously mm-hmm. found guilty of operating an illegal gas refilling business, but yes. they were still open. Uh, so yeah. so how did it get to this point? Uh, the, uh, well, what, according to what I've heard is that a number of times uh, people have written to the different agencies, the environmental agencies that are, are run by the government. And unfortunately, they say that no action has been done ever since uh, they tried to raise the alarm. And these types of illegal gas depots are we're hearing in neighborhoods all over. Nairobi, close to residential neighborhoods like yours. Do you think Mm -hmm. what happened last night might trigger some change, push the government to act? Yeah, I really hope it does because what I saw was really frightening and traumatizing. Every time I sit down to try and think uh, a number of times, uh, the fireball rising above Mm -hmm. uh, the roof of the opposite of the block I was standing in, is uh, is what keeps playing on my mind. So I really hope that the government will be able to uh, take this as a learning lesson and uh, put into action uh, to remove such uh, 
uh, dangers in residential areas. Well, Philip, I appreciate your time. Thank you. You're welcome. Philip Awinio Jeremiah lives in the Embakasi neighborhood of Nairobi, where an explosion took place late last night. That's where we reached him. It's been more than 10 years since a police officer killed Sammy Yatim, but no one who saw video of his death on a Toronto streetcar has ever forgotten it. The 18-year-old was initially shot three times by James Forsillo, and then six more times. Mr. Yatim was holding a small knife at the time, and Mr. Forsillo argued that he was acting in self-defense. Ultimately, a jury convicted the now former constable of attempted murder. He served 21 months of a six-year sentence before being granted parole in 2020. But yesterday, the jury at a coroner's inquest into Sammy Yatim's death ruled that it was a homicide, and jurors issued 63 recommendations to prevent anything like it from ever happening again. Asha James is the lawyer for Sammy Yatim's mother, Sahar Bahadi. We reached her in Toronto. Asha, Sammy's death was ruled a homicide by this inquest jury. What did it mean to Sammy Yatim's family, his mother, Dr. Bahadi, to hear that? It was an important ruling for Dr. Bahadi, uh, mainly because Mr. Fursillo, uh, when the inquest was first supposed to start, had brought a motion to introduce uh, evidence about the idea of a suicide by cop. And of course, that was extremely upsetting to the family. So it, it was important that, you know, that not be a, a thought, mm-hmm. a lasting legacy of, of what happened to Sammy, that his death was recognized as what it was, a homicide. And to be clear, this, what we've heard from this inquest, uh, does not mean James Forsillo could be prosecuted any differently than he has been so far. That's right. There's no uh, legal liability attached to the homicide finding. It, it really is more a, a finding of fact by this jury. Sammy Yatim was killed that day, we know. But James Forsillo was convicted of attempted murder. Remind our listeners why that was. So the the Crown um, in the case made a decision to proceed on both a, a murder charge, uh, second degree, and a um, attempt murder. And uh, what the, the jury ended up doing with that is finding that uh, they couldn't be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that with respect to Mr. Fursillo's first three shots, that he didn't have a, a reasonable fare for, for his life in terms of his interaction with Sammy, but that after those three shots, Sammy was no longer a threat, and that the additional six shots that he fired um, didn't fall within his uh, legal authority as a police officer um, to use force, and and that uh, the force was unreasonable given the circumstances. And I think we've all seen the video um, where Sammy is, is lying on the streetcar after the first three shots and, and then hearing those, those six more um, yeah, but the jury found that, that that was unnecessary. Beyond ruling Sammy's death a homicide, the jury listed 63 recommendations at the end of this inquest. A lot to unpack, certainly. Yeah. But which ones stood out most to you? First and foremost, for the family, not just for Dr. Bahati, but also for her daughter, Sarah, and for Sammy's father, this loss has 
devastated them. I mean, Dr. Bahati testified, and she said she feels paralyzed, um, that she's really kind of stuck in that that year, in 2023, in, in July, and how difficult it has, has been for her daughter and, and her fear that, you know, this has ended up with her kind of losing two kids because her daughter is never going to be the same and, and Sammy's never going to come back. So it was important for them to have this jury recognize and affirm that families need support. One of the other recommendations from this inquest uh, draws attention to, you know, some of the questions that came up in the immediate aftermath that um, there had been questions and red flags raised about James Fursillo having pointed his gun at others. What did the the recommendations do to, to address those kinds of concerns? Uh, so, you know, we, we learned through the inquest that uh, specifically the Toronto Police Service, but a lot of police services around the province of Ontario have a, a kind of early intervention system. And, and so what the jury did with that, I, I think it's important because the Toronto Police Service has this unique uh, situation in which they have in-house psychologists, right? And so it is important that those psychologists are involved in these early interventions in ensuring that, you know, officers who are having multiple use of force incidents are are truly fit to be out um, interacting with members of the public. Mm -hmm. And I think the real realization that while these interactions can undoubtedly be scary and nerve-wracking and all of these things for the police officer, they are also all of those things for the person in crisis, right, who's, who's being faced with this use of force by the police. Yeah, One of the questions at the time was, they weren't on the streetcar, the, the officers, they could have closed the door and he would have yeah. been on the streetcar alone, right? They could have asked him what was wrong. They could have said, we want to talk to you, uh, you know, but we need you to put down the knife instead of just repeating the same thing over and over and over again that obviously was not registering with Sammy that night, right? You know, the 90, 90 seconds to two minutes that they were on scene, you know, nobody ever thought to try that. These recommendations are not legally binding. Toronto Police Service has to just consider them. They have said that they've already undergone significant changes since Sammy Yatim was killed in, quote, technology, training, governance, and people, unquote. Do you believe that, that this is any less likely to happen today than it was a decade ago? I think the training has improved. But, you know, one of the things, the quotes that uh, always resonates from um, Justice Yakabuchi's report on his death was that uh, culture eats training. And so we need to ensure that we change police culture. You can train people as much as you want, but when they're out in the road together, if the culture is not what the training has taught, then it's not going to be what's put into practice. And so that, um, uh, what the jury recommendations were, were, were to recognize, yeah, you have started some of this process, but it needs to be institutionalized, it needs to be enshrined, it needs to be continued, and it needs to be regularly monitored and updated so that we don't have to wait for the next family to that it's rocked policing and policing has greatly changed. The change has to be continuous so we don't ever have these situations again. Asha, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. 
Asha James is a lawyer representing Dr. Sahar Bahadi, the mother of Sammy Yatim. We reached Ms. James in Toronto. Nova Scotia, thank you. And if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Listeners in Nova Scotia do not need me to tell them who that was. But for the rest of the country, that was Rick Howe signing off for the last time in 2021 with his signature borrowed phrase, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. For over five decades, Mr. Howe was a fixture on the radio across the Maritimes. Every weekday for three and a half hours, he hosted the Rick Howe Show on City News 95.7. And it was clear he was paying attention to everything and was outraged by a fair amount of it. Rick Howe has died of cancer at the age of 69. In 2021, during his final show before retirement, his wife, Yvonne Colbert, called into the show. She's a star of Atlantic Canadian journalism in her own right, and she spoke about his dedication to his craft even when he was sick with cancer. Everybody knows you love your work. All anybody has to do is listen to you to know that. But here's one thing that they don't know. When you were in the hospital, when you were drugged, you had no idea what was going on around you or who you were or anything like that. You were doing the talk show and interviewing people out loud. And the guy in the bed next to you every morning would say, gee, Rick, I love listening to the show last night. And one morning you were like, what show? And he said, well, you were doing it in your sleep. So that is... Rick Howe from the Rick Howe Show. I love you. I love you too. And as I as I left the hospital, that finally after 23 days, uh, buddy in the bed beside me said, uh, "Gonna miss your shows," and, uh, and that's when he revealed that uh, most nights he, I, I would be actually doing the show. He would hear my voice doing interviewing people, yeah. not getting yeah. the questions answered, but interviewing people and, and talking about the issues. And uh, I uh, good drugs, I guess is. Uh, <laughs> Well, it says a lot about you and your career and your dedication to it. I appreciate that, and we'll see you very soon. Thank you, love. Love you, sweetheart. All right, you too. Todd Vino is the host of The Todd Vino Show in Nova Scotia. He worked alongside Rick Howe. We reached him in Halifax. Todd, you were in the studio when that call from Yvonne Colbert, our former CBC News colleague, came in. Was that emblematic of, of of their relationship? Well, yeah, it, it it says it all. I mean, I think I think uh, Rick uh, first and foremost. Uh, I mean, he was it was in his DNA. Talk radio was, and being a reporter, uh, being a being a journalist, uh, it, it was literally in his DNA. And uh, first and foremost, Rick uh, Rick loved his family above all, yeah. and and certainly his wife. They were so close, as you know. Uh, Yvonne, an amazing journalist, broadcaster in her own right. But the support that she gave him uh, was incredible. That's a, that's she did it uh, in such a generous, giving way. Uh, and uh, Rick was Rick knew that he was very lucky to have that kind of support. But but the love uh, you can hear between them was yeah. is so genuine, and it was a real treat to to witness that. And you you honored and celebrated. Rick's life and career on your own show yesterday. You asked people to call in. So lots of people shared stories. Um, what did they tell you about how important Rick was to them? 
Rick represented them. When Rick was interviewing the politicians of the day or the decision makers of the day, and Rick was was demonstrating outrage, he was doing it by uh, people felt almost by proxy for for the audience. Uh, that really came across yesterday in the calls. Just uh, uh, such a genuine connection and an outpouring of emotion and, and love for the guy. So he lived up to and really embodied that that classic line which our listeners just heard if you're not outraged you're not paying attention he lived that that was that he's truly embodied that although rick was outraged often he was also extremely friendly and 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 an optimist and let, let's call it what it is i mean rick was a talk show host and he knew <laughs> to stir the pot right he that's that was part of of the shtick and and i lived that on a daily yeah. basis it's always there and rick knew that controversy uh, translated into listeners, uh, but but when all is said and done, I think Rick wanted to make a difference and truly wanted to move the needle in the right direction when it comes to a lot of the issues, and really felt that holding people accountable was his responsibility. Mm -hmm. And again, that that's what resonated so deeply with the audience. And, and on the issue of accountability, uh, after the the mass shootings in Nova Scotia. And they, there was news that the government yeah. would not be holding an inquiry into what happened. Uh, he held he he dedicated a whole show to it and pushed that point. That well, not only a whole now. show. He did he 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 did that for I would say weeks. I mean, it was day after day after day after day. He would not let up and would not let that go and demanded a public inquiry and the calls mounted and the emails mounted and he he encouraged everybody to to write the, the Minister of Justice, to write the Premier, to write your MLA. That's part of Rick's legacy. He, he knew how to, how to motivate, and he would not give up. Yeah. Relentless. If we go back to that final show in 2021, something else Yvonne mentioned, joked about, was how people always asked her if Rick ever took off his baseball cap. And she said yes, but he hung it on his bedpost when he came to bed every <laughs> night. Describe his style for us. Well, I mean, Rick's style was uh, again. He was just him. Nobody else could pull that off, right? <laughs> if if I if I went in there and I tried, nobody else could have pulled it off. But but it was Rick Howe with the with the jeans, with the Hawaiian shirts, with the beard, with the scruffiness, with the aviator glasses and the hat. I mean, he was he was a almost a cartoon character in a way. In in that. Nobody else could could make that work and 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 be taken seriously, quite honestly. But Rick was, uh, you know, people took Rick seriously. Nobody said no to Rick when Rick wanted you on. It was an honor, and and people took it that way. But Rick was going to live uh, life the way that he wanted to, a beat of his own drum. Uh, all those cliches applied to Rick, and his appearance was uh, was certainly uh, part of that. What's the personal memory you're hanging on to as you think of Rick now? Rick and I used to do a segment every Friday uh, uh, called the Friday Face-Off. And uh, it was Rick and I going at it. And Rick and I disagreed on a lot of things. We were kind of, Rick is, is, is left of center. I would consider myself a centrist, uh, uh, but, but we disagreed a lot on a lot of issues. But it was always great because we could go at it and we would battle. And at the end of it, it was a laugh and we would know that it was not personal. Uh, often, sometimes I think Rick would just get me going because he knew how to push my buttons. But uh, again, to a testament to him as a host. But, but that, to me, were those, the great memories of, 
of having the, the battle with Rick and knowing that, that we could do it in a safe place and it wasn't personal. And at the end of the day, we were friends. Well, Todd, thanks for, for coming on the show to talk about your friend. I appreciate it. All right. It's been, a, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Todd Vino is the host of The Todd Vino Show and a friend of Rick Howe. We reached him in Halifax. Rick Howe, a fixture of Maritime Radio, has died. He was 69. Twenty-five years ago, the U.S. National Security Agency confronted a potential threat, a high-tech device proliferating on the bedside tables of the country's innocent youth and burbling in mysterious code. Be scared. You me. Bring, 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 bring. <laughs> the sound of a toy called a Furby. To most kind of fun, if mildly irritating. To others, incredibly irritating. But still, just a toy, right? Maybe. Or maybe a small, big-eared spy. In 1998, NSA agents started asking questions. And now, for the first time, we know the exact questions they were asking because of a person who goes by Cat online who filed a Freedom of Information request last year and last week received 60 pages of NSA documents revealing the brief but intense internal turmoil set off by the Furby. Here with a crucial exchange from this hitherto unheard correspondence. December 10th, 1998. Subject, are Furbies okay in NSA? It has come to my attention that a new toy on the market has an artificial intelligent chip on board. I believe these things are called Fropies, but I'm not sure. But my understanding is that these guys contain a writable chip that would definitely be a security concern. Please help clear this up. December 15th, 1998. Furby alert! Personally owned photographic, video, and audio recording equipment are prohibited items. This includes toys such as Furbies with built-in recorders that repeat the audio with synthesized sound to mimic the original audio signal. Please do not introduce these into NSA spaces. Staff go on to argue about the toy's recording capabilities, what kind of chip it might possess, and whether a Furby on the desk of an NSA agent could eventually lead to a major security breach. When this agency-wide kerfuffle was leaked to the press in 1999, the owner of the company that made the Furby revealed how much information his product was recording and storing. None. It recorded nothing. It was a toy that spoke Furbish. Well, fine but I've still got my eye on our Furby. And if there's a security breach, I'll immediately be able to finger the Furbitrator.
generally speaking, we try not to focus too much on numbers on this program. They don't make for great radio, and we'd rather tell you the human stories behind the numbers. But in the case of Gaza, the numbers are uniquely striking. More than 27,000 people have now been killed there, according to the territory's Hamas-run health ministry. Another 65,000 are wounded. The UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights says 1.9 million people have been forced to flee their homes, many of them to the southern city of Rafah, which is precisely the location Israel's defense minister says the IDF plans to target next. Hisham Mahana is a media and communications officer with the International Committee of the Red Cross. We reached him in Rafah. Hisham, we know you are in Rafah. Where exactly are you right now? Um, I'm standing in uh, the Rafah governorate, which used to be inhabited by approximately 300,000 people, now over 1.6 million. Uh, I can see uh, people still trying to find a place to stay. They are moving in their cars or by uh, animal drag carts uh, with their uh, whatever belongings they could carry, mattresses, blankets, some pieces of wood, searching for a place to stay. Not everyone even is accessible to have a tent. What kinds of things are people saying to you as you as you try to help them and interact with them? First, they ask, when is this going to end? Please end the war. And they ask for everything they need, for food, for safety, for medication. They ask for a tent. Whenever we try to move, it takes us a very long time to get past. Uh, a few hundred meters because of the overcrowdedness. Uh, what used to take us 10, 15 minutes has become now more than two to three hours. You spoke about, you know, people asking you, when will this end? You may have seen that, that uh, Israel's defense minister yesterday wrote on social media, quote, the Han Yunus Brigade of the Hamas organization is disbanded. We will complete the mission there and continue to Rafa. We will continue until the end. There is no other way. Unquote. What does that signal to you? How do you translate those comments? Well, I cannot comment on uh, on a quote of the Israeli defense minister. However, such rhetoric adds more fear, more depression, you know, for an already exhausted population living in tents. Over 1.5 million people now are homeless as they have lost their homes. And uh, the only place they are staying now is, is Rafa. I don't see actually how it is even possible to, uh, to expand the military operation to include the Rafa governorate. If that happens, we will not only witness the death of thousands of civilians, but also that would definitely uh, stop any healthcare service uh, to be provided. We're also hearing uh, a report from Channel 12 in Israel. Uh, that report says Benjamin Netanyahu's war cabinet is looking at the possibility of further limiting humanitarian access to the Gaza Strip in the coming days. What would that mean on the ground? Well, we have witnessed already uh, starvation at staggering level in the north, and it's nearly also impossible to find, for some people in the south, food on daily basis. Um, the international humanitarian law is very clear about allowing humanitarian aid to enter Gaza. And we also ask for all the necessary safety precautions that would allow us to bring this aid to the hundreds of thousands of people who are in a dire need for uh, across the Gaza Strip, in the north, in the south, in the hospitals, in the tents, everywhere they are. It was just a week ago today 
that the International Court of Justice ruled Israel must work to prevent genocide in Gaza, allow more humanitarian access to Gaza. Just listening to you, it doesn't sound like that decision has changed anything on the ground, has it? Unfortunately, the situation changes only towards the worse. We've also been reporting this week on the suspension of funding to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, UNRWA, uh, because of the Israeli uh, intelligence reports and accusations that 12 UNRWA employees uh, were allegedly involved in the attacks on October 7th. We know Canada paused its funding, but also announced $40 million in contributions towards other aid organizations, including the ICRC. Are all of those organizations, not just yours, equipped to pick up the slack if UNRWA is forced to stop operating eventually? Well, defunding UNRWA would definitely lead to further deterioration in the in the, in the humanitarian situation in general. And I'm not sure if we have the luxury of time to replace UNRWA with other agencies, even if they have the capacity. How does it affect the work you know, that investigation separate from you and your work, obviously. Does it also, though, put pressure on your organization to make sure that there are no concerns and no allegations could arise? Um, The ICRC is very much clear with its code of conduct and and mandate. And, uh, you know, if your question entails that this this investigation may need into, you know, uh, having the ICRC uh, be questioned in the future. I hope that not, but I can guarantee you that the ICRC is doing everything in its capacity to respond to all the humanitarian needs given the circumstances and, and to the maximum um, the situation allows. I wanted to ask you from a personal standpoint, Hisham, I know your your wife was able to leave Gaza in November with your two-year-old son, Ryan. She was also very close to giving birth to your second son, Jude, at the time. What do you know about how they're doing? Well, uh, I consider myself uh, privileged to have, uh, you know, my family uh, outside of, of Gaza. She was evacuated because she's a dual citizen. She's half Palestinian, half Filipino. Um, unlike the vast majority of the population. And, uh, yeah, of course, it's heartbreaking that I haven't met my newborn yet, mm. but I at least uh, feel happy that he received the care he needs, unlike thousands of babies who are born in tents in the cold without the proper health care and, and, you know, healthy environment they, they are entitled to have. Everyone has suffered. Everyone has lost something or someone that is irreplaceable. Yeah. Hisham, uh, I very much appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much. Hisham Mahana is with the International Committee of the Red Cross in Gaza. He's in Rafa. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. 
We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. They came to Canada from Russia decades ago to escape religious persecution. And this week, British Columbia officially apologized for what they endured here. In the 50s, Dukabor children from the sect known as the Sons of Freedom were placed in residential schools, some for years. They were punished for speaking their language and practicing their faith. And according to reports from the BC Ombudsman's office, some endured mental and physical abuse. Both of Lorraine Walton's parents were placed in residential schools. She's a spokesperson for the advocacy group The Lost Voices of New Denver. She joins us from Grand Forks, British Columbia. But before Neil talks to Ms. Walton, here's some of what B.C. Attorney General Nikki Sharma said yesterday after the official apology in Castlegar, B.C. This is a shameful part of our history. I'm driven to tears to comprehend the horrors experienced by children of your community. On behalf of the province of British Columbia, we acknowledge and apologize for these past injustices that were committed by the province. It was wrong, and it should not have happened. Lorraine, hearing it was wrong and should not have happened, after all your community has uh, has fought for over all these years, how did it feel to hear that from a government representative? It was just, just listening to that little speech right now, just makes my chest really tight Mm. and it's very emotional it was also very healing for the survivors and their families that were in the room there was over 250 people present and i believe it was also a big relief to hear those words so that we can move forward in healing it took 71 years to hear the words we acknowledge and we are sorry It was further acknowledgement um, throughout events yesterday and uh, today in in British Columbia. Uh, Just tell me about the moments that that spoke to you in addition to what we just heard. What really spoke to me is after um, the Attorney General had spoken and then to have survivors to stand and share their story and their experiences is heart-wrenching for they had to relieve that trauma again and again, but I also felt that there was some healing starting as when they shared their story, they were validated. And hearing the names of the deceased, acknowledging them. That was very powerful for me, for my family is deceased, my mother and my father and my uncle. So to feel that spiritual presence that was in the room, we felt after we sang our hymn that they have been released from the pain that they suffered here on earth and could go to their final resting place. And it was just this powerful, uplifting feeling within our souls. This apology uh, comes with words, but also $10 million dollars in a compensation package that focuses on education and cultural preservation for your community. 3.7 million in particular is earmarked for what the government has described, wellness, counseling, and treatment. But there isn't specific compensation for for survivors. 
those who are still here. How did you feel about that decision? Well, that is left with really mixed emotions and some sadness because it's very unclear of what they mean by that health and wellness. Is it just applying for therapy that is far too late? What these survivors and us as the next generation need is financial compensation. They are between the ages of 75 to 83. Majority have already passed away. They need to be able to live out the time that they have left in comfort and peace and maybe something that they can give forward to their children or grandchildren. But that should come from them. This money belongs to them. They suffered. They paid the ultimate price. And it should be their decision of what they should do with that money. After 71 years of fighting, as you said, are, are you getting the sense from people that they're prepared to, to keep fighting for that personal compensation at this point? Well, what we're hoping for in the sense that I, I, I uh, felt and, and spoke to some survivors yesterday and at today's apology, it's not the fighting. We're hoping that we can sit down and quickly for they don't have a lot of time left. We can't drag this out for years and years that we can sit down and, and reach a conclusion about personal compensation. And if the government still wants to give this $10 million in their breakdown, then maybe they should come up with another $10 million and compensate those 200 children. Your mother and father aren't here to see this compensation package or hear that emotional apology and those words we, we started our conversation with. Is that something that, that would have been meaningful to them? Yes. It absolutely would have been meaningful to them. And it would have started their healing. People need to know about the dark history that happened in British Columbia and the children paid the price, but they were never, ever to blame. Some recognition for all of that yeah. this week. Lorraine, thank you. Thank you for sharing our story. Lorraine Walton is a spokesperson for the Dukabor advocacy group, The Lost Voices of New Denver. We reached her in Grand Forks, British Columbia. In just five weeks, young athletes from Team Nunavut will board a plane bound for Alaska to compete in the Arctic Winter Games, but only if they get their passports, and soon. Dozens of athletes in the territory are still struggling to get their passport applications completed in time for the Games. In the South, you can just walk into a Service Canada to get your passport expedited, but that's not an option in Nunavut. And recent issues at the Iqaluit Post Office, as well as language barriers, have compounded the problem. Laurie Idlout is the MP for Nunavut. We reached her in Iqaluit. 
Lori Idloud, how are you feeling at this hour? Are these athletes, all of them, going to be able to board a plane to Alaska for these games? Unfortunately, we still don't know if all of them will be able to make it, but Mm -hmm. uh, my team is working hard now with the minister's team uh, to make sure that they do get to go because I know how hard they work to earn their spot. You know, anyone who's who's applied for a passport will know that if there's a pressing reason or, uh, you know, an upcoming trip, when you present that, it's supposed to expedite things. What's happened here? Uh, the system is a bit more complicated because uh, there aren't really any great support mechanisms. All 25 communities are fly-in communities. Uh, the mail uh, is never... It's not always reliable. There's always flight cancellations. There's always delays. There's always staffing issues at post offices. Mm -hmm. So there tends to be a lot more barriers in order for um, things like passport applications uh, to be completed in time. So we've been uh, trying to work with different uh, principals, school teams to really make sure that the athletes are getting their uh, applications in. What have you heard from Service Canada as you try to help these athletes? The process was going well. The athletes or the schools that are helping the athletes would send their applications uh, to my staff in Ottawa, and then my staff would go to passport offices uh, either in Ottawa or Gatineau, and they'd line up like every other passport applicant. And that worked uh, for a couple of months. But then for some reason, uh, unfortunately, we were told to stop having my staff go to line up for my constituents. What would be wrong with that? Why would they be opposed to that? Um, I don't, I'm not too sure what the opposition is. I know Mm -hmm. that my staff was saying that um, there's, particular staff that were okay with it, but with the number of times that my staff were going there, it just became an issue. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it, I don't know if it was considered irregularities or yeah. like a sudden increase, but the fact that it, I, I, I don't know why they would take exception when it was the MP for Nunavut's office that was trying to help. Uh, yeah. These athletes get their passports. That was the problem. The it doesn't get much higher in terms of <laughs> levels of of government to help them. Uh, speaking of levels of government, uh, speaking about this in the House of Commons this week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was uh, said had something to say about it. Let's let's listen to a bit of what he said on this. For the question, I know it's an important one for families across Nunavut, and that's why uh, we're committed to working to resolve this issue. I was just up in Nunavut uh, for a historic announcement around devolution uh, a few weeks ago, uh, working directly with the Premier to demonstrate how we build a stronger future together. Uh, This is an issue that I know the Minister is engaged with. We will look for solutions. Uh, We want to make sure that our young uh, Nunavut athletes uh, show what they're capable of at the Arctic Winter Games. Go Canada, go, go Nunavut, go. So it sounds like the Prime Minister is rooting for the athletes, but what would you say in response to that? First of all, I do appreciate the response because the Minister for Citizen Services, uh, Mr. Beach, reached out to my office and we've been having regular communications now. 
so I'm very, I, I've been, I've become more hopeful that uh, the athletes will be able to go. Secondly, when he talks about the devolution agreement in his response, mm-hmm. that's a completely different area that that yeah. has nothing to do with uh, the government of Nunavut and what services the government of Nunavut would do. I had hoped that maybe at least he could have responded by saying that Service Canada offices in Nunavut, uh, there are three of them, uh, could be given the resources to actually process passport applications within Nunavut. Uh, it's already expensive enough for Nunavut to have to leave. Um, I don't know if you've seen uh, Canadian North had posted their prices for income tax purposes for 2023, and a return ticket between Greece, Fjord, and Ottawa is over $11,000. And I can't imagine a family trying to get to Ottawa so that they could get their passport application processed. When a regular Canadian citizen wants to have their passport expedited, it's only hundreds of dollars, whereas for Nunavut, it's in the thousands. If if the athletes who still don't have passports, don't get them in time, if they can't compete, what message does it send to them? It it means that they're going to have to continue to experience more barriers than other Canadians, even as hard as they work to earn their spot, they're still going to experience further barriers, and the system is not there to help them in the same way that other uh, Canadian youth might have uh, to make sure that they can compete internationally. So we need to make sure that as Canadians that we show the same value to Nunavut athletes as we do other Canadian athletes. Laurie, I, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Yes, thank you for having me. Laurie Edloud is the MP for Nunavut. She's in Iqaluit. In her new review of BC's Safer Supply Program, the Provincial Health Officer makes a key recommendation, expand access. Dr. Bonnie Henry's advice is to broaden both the availability and the types of drugs that can be prescribed under the program, which allows medical professionals to give substance users regulated versions of some opioids in an effort to curb toxic drug deaths. As you know, that is a matter of phenomenal urgency. In 2023, more than 2,500 people died in BC after using toxic drugs, the most deaths ever recorded in one year. Kennedy Stewart is a former mayor of Vancouver who advocated for changes to BC's drug policies. He's currently a professor of public policy at Simon Fraser University. We reached him in Vancouver. Kennedy, this issue has been studied, discussed, debated. Now we have this new report from Dr. Henry as well. Do you expect that... This will bring significant change. Uh, sadly, I don't. We kind of uh, have a, almost a macabre consensus here in British Columbia among the political leadership and, sadly, the population that it seems to be okay for six or seven people a day to be dying and probably 100 to 150 overdosing from toxic drugs. Uh, so, fire uh, Dr. Hendry's work trying to push this rock up the hill. 
The province, though, does say it is reviewing these recommendations and is committing to expanding medication options. Does that ease your mind and change your feelings? It doesn't when you consider the scope of the problem. Um, the BC coroner estimates about 225,000 of our 5 million inhabitants here in BC use hard drugs. And we've had 14,000 people die since the um, uh, the emergency uh, was declared in 2016. So the, the scale of this problem is enormous, and I don't think that minor tinkering around the edges is going to is going to really have it that much of an impact. What will then? Well, I think this is what governments have to get their heads together on: is is who's going to grab this by the horns and who's going to really say how do we go from seven deaths a day to five to four to three? I mean, we do this with all kinds of other policy issues, but we, we don't seem to have um, anybody really willing to to say that the scale of the change that needs to happen to save these people, and which is, you know, at this point, it's the number one killer of young people in British Columbia is the toxic drug deaths. The program has its critics, as you know, people who've said it's counterintuitive, that drug deaths have continued to rise, there are concerns about diversion, and Dr. Henry herself is clear that the program carries risks. She recommends creating a committee to look at the impacts. It sounds like you don't see a further case for slowing things down. Well, I always agree with assessment because, you know, science is the only way through here. We're, we kind of have a, a debate of science versus fear, and, and sadly, fear seems to be winning out. The, the the number of these um, you know prescribed alternative programs we only have for just over four thousand people that have received this type of treatment out of the about over a hundred thousand people that need it uh, so you know these are great little pilot programs that seem to succeed according to to Dr Henry but they're not nearly enough and sadly the deaths are going to continue until we we have a grown up adult conversation about what's going on here rather than the the back and forth we're seeing from political leaders. You mentioned, you know, they've they've acted differently, governments, uh, on, on other issues, you know, recognizing the significance of the scale. Is there one in particular that, that you would draw parallels to this, where you could say, take what you did there and execute it in this situation? Well, oddly, I, when I read this report this morning, I was thinking of Dr. Bonnie Henry at the beginning of COVID, uh, when nobody really knew what was going on. And, and she was leading us through that problem where she had a press conference where she cried because she knew how many British Columbians, how many Canadians, how many people around the world were going to get sick and how many were going to die. Uh, and then we followed her advice and, and we did very, very well here in, 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 in BC. So I, I really think we have to turn to our public health officials who we've trusted through through other severe crises and follow their lead even though it is uncomfortable and leads to opposition within in the, within the greater public because of the fear that's being stoked by uh, folks who don't want to see the truth and want to sometimes capitalize politically after this, uh, this tragedy do you think you will you will hear that kind of change at the end of the day? Because, you know, politics aside, we, we have talked about cases where, you know, people do feel what they're seeing is unsafe in their neighborhood. Leaders have to strike a balance, right? Listening to the constituents who don't want harm to be done to people. They, they want people to get the treatment they need, but are also worried about what they're seeing. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally sympathize with people who feel uh, unsafe in neighborhoods, and that's uh, you know that there's a variety of causes for that. But prescribed alternatives are are not causing that. If anything, they're going to help.
reduce crime, reduce suffering. You know, being mayor for four years, you would just hear these very distressing things from people, especially who kind of deny the science. And, and I think that's if people look into their hearts and they think, well, you know, is this what being Canadian is all about? Letting this immense suffering, because remember, it's not just the deaths, it's the overdoses. It sounds like, um, if I'm hearing you correctly, there hasn't been more movement in your view because people don't see this as a as a me problem. Is that what mm-hmm. you think is happening in some cases? Yeah, until a family member dies. I mean, that's what happened in my family. We lost somebody that we all loved. And, uh, you know, there's others within our family that are, are affected. And I think it's hard to find a family in British Columbia that hasn't either experienced this directly or know somebody else that has. And that's what's going to happen when you have, you know, almost a, a quarter of a million people who either have used or continue to use hard drugs in the province. And the, and the supply is totally toxic. It only takes one use to die. Did your views change after your personal family experiences? They really changed. I I understood the scope of it when I w- was mayor. Like every Monday I would have an email that came into my inbox that would say, you know, seven or eight or ten people died this week and 150 were revived by our firefighters. And that's when the scale hit me. I mean, that... You can't walk around anywhere in Vancouver where somebody really hasn't died on the street of an overdose from toxic drugs. It's coming to your family, too, if we don't do more about this, and not just in British Columbia, right across the country. Kennedy, thank you for your time. Thank you. Kennedy Stewart is a former mayor of Vancouver. That's where we reached him. Twenty twenty three was a remarkably bad year on all kinds of fronts, and you can add coral reefs to the list. Extreme ocean temperatures caused significant coral bleaching as intense heat stress drained corals brilliant colors. In fact, twenty twenty three was such an extreme year it pushed the US government's Coral Reef Watch to add three levels to its alert system for ocean temperatures. Derek Manzello is the director of Coral Reef Watch. We reached him in Columbia, Maryland. Derek, what do ocean conditions have to be like to constitute a level five, the highest level in this new system? An alert level five condition really represents the most extreme worst case scenario that you could uh, anticipate happening on a coral reef from heat stress. So this is analogous to a category five cyclone or hurricane in that the impacts from an alert level five bleaching event are expected to be uh, severe and drastic. Um, so there have been three examples in the literature of heat stress at this level impacting reefs around the planet. We mentioned in the intro about, a little bit about the, the most recent bleaching events. What was so different and difficult in 2023? So in 2023, the wider Caribbean was basically exposed to what we are now called, calling um, alert level four conditions. Um, as well as a, a wide area experience alert level five condition. So prior to 2023, <clears throat> the highest heat stress 
that the entire region had ever experienced was in 2005. And at that time, there was only really a small area around the U.S. Virgin Islands that experienced um, what were alert level four conditions. So this past year, the entire basin basically experienced these alert level uh, four and five conditions. What has all of this been like for people who closely monitor coral reefs? Because most of us see reefs through a screen, through images, and they're certainly beautiful um, and fascinating to look at. But for people who do this work up close to see the kind of concern that you're listing, what have they said? Um, Well, unfortunately, last year's event was quite devastating for uh, many coral reef scientists, especially the restoration community in places like Florida and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, And the reason I say that is because, you know, there have been folks doing restoration in the Florida Keys now for upwards of 20 years. Um, And what happened last summer in Florida was certain reef sites uh, down in the lower and middle keys experienced rapid uh, mortality. Um, So uh, one example was from a reef named Sombrero Reef. Uh, So an agency called the Coral Restoration Foundation had been restoring that reef for about a decade. Um, And what they found was that in a matter of days, all the corals had died. So this was devastating for people that had been spending years of their lives trying to restore these reefs. Um, So, I mean, we've already seen really devastating, severe impacts in certain locations. We had a guest on this summer from Florida who talked about taking the coral out of the water, moving it to land to keep it safe from these these temperatures. It's not a long-term solution, it it sounds like. So what are the long-term plans now? Well, you know, the coral restoration community, not only in Florida, but worldwide, has really had to do a gut check um, after this year. And they really need to go back to the drawing board and reassess how they're doing business. Um, And, you know, they're asking questions like, do we need to be changing the species of coral that we're working with? Because the the two species of coral that are most often worked with in the Caribbean also are the most thermally sensitive. So these are the species that we saw dying in a matter of days. And, you know, what what I personally think we need is a lot more investment in, in research to try to uh, facilitate this process called assisted evolution. Um, so this has been championed and spearheaded by researchers in Australia, University of Hawaii, as well as in Florida. And the idea here is to find coral species and individuals in the wild that are more tolerant to heat stress than others, and then try to understand the genetics underlying that increased heat tolerance, and then ultimately use that information and those corals to breed uh, corals for the future, if you will. So so breeding super corals that are able to withstand uh, high heat stress. So there's a lot of research going into that area. I think we need a lot more, especially considering... Mm -hmm you know, the clear and present danger uh, of climate change that we saw impacting coral reefs this past year. You know, we're really in a race against time. The planet is warming every year. And uh, the rate that we're getting this information and these data is just, it's just not going to be able to keep up with how fast the planet's warming. You mentioned that scientists, you know, the, the coral preservation community should do a gut check. What about those of us who aren't scientists, maybe even don't live close to, to beautiful coral reefs? What kind of gut check should we be doing, given how quickly things are moving from your perspective? Well, you know, it is a, it is a huge problem that, um, you know, 
as a coral reef scientist, uh, you know, I face every day. So most people in the United States and Canada, coral reefs are out of sight, out of mind. But coral reefs are the rainforest of the sea. So the most marine biodiversity is found in coral reefs. So coral reefs occupy less than 1% of the global ocean seafloor. And yet about one in four of every documented marine species associates with coral reefs at some point in their lives. So as coral reefs die, we're losing uh, this immense biodiversity. You know, just aesthetically taking a step back, you know, in my mind, coral reefs are the most beautiful natural habitat that exists on planet Earth. And the fact that these are just dying across a global scale every year, I think it's really a ecological tragedy that's unfolding right before our very eyes. Derek, thank you. Yes, my pleasure. Derek Manzello is the director of Coral Reef Watch. We reached him in Columbia, Maryland. like a child who gets applause. There's nothing like that, you know. Anybody who's got a kid who's doing some good stuff, man, applaud them. Because that support and that love that comes through that and that acceptance, that is so valuable. It's invaluable. That was actor Carl Weathers speaking last year at San Diego State University about the first time he received applause for his performance in a pageant as a kid. Mr. Weathers credited that transformative moment on stage with setting his career in motion, and whether it was on the football field as a linebacker for the Oakland Raiders, and later the BC Lions, or on the set of countless Hollywood blockbusters, Mr. Weathers found success on whatever stage he stepped on. You know, if you weren't a BC Lions fan in the early 70s, you probably know him for his roles as Apollo Creed in the Rocky series, Al Dillon in Predator, Chubbs Peterson in Happy Gilmore, or Grief Karga on the Star Wars series The Mandalorian, or a very thrifty version of himself in Arrested Development. Carl Weathers died yesterday. He was 76. From 2023, here's another excerpt from that San Diego State University lecture in which Mr. Weathers credits actor Sidney Poitier as a major influence. I did a play in grade school and people applauded and laughed at the lines and I mean, wow, man, that's heady stuff for a kid, you know, in sixth grade. So that and then I went into junior high school and did plays and was performing and in, in choir and all that sort of stuff because I sang also. And then, um, you know, college, I mean, it was like, what am I going to major in? And I had this wonderful instructor, a guy named Jerry Patch at Long Beach City College, who was involved in all kinds of theater at the time, you know, and and it was like the the world of hippies was everywhere, and he was kind of in that world, you know. I was in his class, in a theater class, an acting class maybe, I can't remember exactly what it was, but he suggested that I go read for a play, Mm. which I did. And I got a role, way in the background, but I got a role, you know? And I remember it was, uh, actually I played a a neighbor in a view from the bridge, right? Who would have thunk it, okay? They had a black neighbor, okay, whatever, you know? (laughs) So, so, So I do that play, 
And uh, I got encouragement there, and, and all of those instructors gave me encouragement as a, because I played football there, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, when I got here at San Diego State, it was again, it was okay, I got a major in theater, because that's what I'm loving, right? And the dream began. I, I just mm -hmm. wanted to be an actor, and professionally, uh, film was the thing that, that drew me from the mo moment I saw Sidney Poitier a billion years mm -hmm. ago on screen. You know, there was an, an example that I could be that guy. Hmm. And, you know, people like Woody Strode and Harry Belafonte, those images were important images for me, you know? Poitier made a huge impression on me as a kid. Hmm. Huge. I mean, uh, the things I saw as a kid in, by the way, uh, segregated movie theaters, okay? Hmm. Uh, Man, those images, they can mean so much, you know. Um, and despite all of that created kind of uh, negativity that we as human beings create, um, it's kind of like that, that analogy of, of, you know, broken asphalt in mm. a neighborhood where there's this blade of grass or this little flower that comes up, you know. You never know, man. You never know. So as you move along in the world, uh, you know, there's something about kindness, generosity, uh, humanity. You know, some of us turn our, our, our heads to the side when we said, but love. You know, expressing that is, is a good thing to do. Mm. You, don't, you don't have to be, uh, you know, somebody who's overbearing with it. But just that that small amount of encouragement to somebody who may need it on a particular day doesn't cost you a damn thing. But man, it can be so valuable to a young kid who eventually becomes this guy called Carl, Carl Weathers, you know. From 2023, Carl Weathers speaking at San Diego State University. The professional football player and actor died yesterday. He was 76. to As It Happens on the CBC Listen app. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, After the World at 6. And you can always read more about the stories and conversations we have on As It Happens on our website at cbc.ca slash AIH. I'm Neil Kirksal. Thanks for listening. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.